Hello and happy Thursday, everyone. Uh, Caitlin just jumping in quick here with a reminder about our Twitter watch along for the final episode this coming Sunday. That's March 2nd at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. Also, just letting you know that after our finale episode goes up, Mandy, Dr. Anya, and I will be recording a mailbag wrap-up episode. So if you have anything that Mandy and I may have missed about season one that you want us to talk about, or any further questions for Dr. Anya, or want us to discuss what we are looking forward to in season two, please let us know. And now, into the episode. Welcome to Desire Made Real, a discovery of Witches Podcast, where we recap every episode of the television show spoiler-free. I'm one of your hosts, Mandy Kay, and when I'm not talking about the forbidden love of a vampire and a witch, I'm talking about movies on my other show, Pop Culturally Deprived. And I'm Caitlin, and when I'm not talking about a discovery of witches, I'm podcasting about Lord of the Rings on So You Want to Read Tolkien. Each week, we'll recap the episode, spoiler-free, and we'll also be joined by our friend, Dr. Anya, an evolutionary biologist, who will talk about the science of the show. We'll also include a segment at the end to discuss the books, how well the adaptation works, and we will likely dive into some spoilers here, but don't worry, we'll give you plenty of warning before we get there. Episode 7 was directed by Sarah Walker and written by Sarah Dollard. And this is the episode where we meet a magic house. And Peter Knox can't stop sweating. Yeah, it's disgusting. It really was. <laughs> Honestly, that's all I got out of I mean, th- those are the, the big points. That's what I remember when I think about this episode, which is probably pretty terrible. Because it's a really good episode. This is tied with episode three for my favorite. Okay. I, don't, I, don't I can I, I, could, I can see that. Yeah. I don't think I could pick one over the other. Mostly I like them for two different reasons. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like episode three, I just think is the best written and like edited and put together episode. This one just has my favorite like character interactions and everything. Okay, I haven't picked a favorite episode from the season and I probably won't until we do our final recap episode. That's fair. That's fair. I like them all. They are all good. So we jump right in pretty, pretty close to picking right up where the last episode left off. So this has Diana and Matthew getting ready to leave Sator, saying goodbye to Isabeau. Mm-hmm. Now they are going to Madison. Yes, and Diana doesn't look like she's had any injuries at all. She seems perfectly 100% okay, which... Kind of, yeah. <laughs> all right, sure. I mean, there was a little shadow on her face, so there was... They were trying to show that there was some bruising that was healing, I think, but they didn't do a great job with I that. Guess. And I know we talked about in the last episode that the the torture wasn't quite where we had hoped it would be. Um, but she definitely recovered <laughs> thing from to say. it Sorry. very, very quickly. <laughs> the torture wasn't where we hoped it would be. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. No, it's true, though. Like in the book, I think Diana still had to be sort of carried around at this point yeah she was still severely injured by the time they got to madison and you know the physical stuff i don't really care about but i am kind of sad that they took out how it mentally affected her 
Yeah. And how, yeah. Because I think in the, well, we can talk about that later. Anyways, and then just before they leave, Isabeau talks to Matthew and basically says something like, you know, Baldwin will hold off the congregation, but you have to come up with a plan. <laughs> and I like how she's just like, this isn't Baldwin's problem. Get your shit together. Pretty much. Isabeau knows what's what. I love her. I love her, too. I, I still think she's probably my favorite character in the books. Not quite in the show, at, at least mm-hmm. at this point. But I love in this opening how you can just clearly see that she feels absolute affection for Diana now, which mm-hmm. is such a change from the first scene that we had between mm-hmm. Isabeau and Diana. And I love it. I do. And I like that. I like that she can do both, I suppose, is what I'm mm-hmm. like. I don't know how to just say what I'm thinking. Well, it proves that, that she is open-minded the way that Matthew told us that she was, that she has the ability to grow, that she doesn't hate Diana just for the sake of being a witch. Yes. She loves Diana for Diana. She loves Diana because Matthew loves Diana. Yes. And is, I think it's it's wonderful. It is very good. Uh, and then, so I guess that was technically like a cold open because we get the logo after this. Mm-hmm. Which will be the second cold open that we've had. Yeah. In the run, which I thought was interesting. But again, it's because the entire rest of the episode happens in either Madison or Venice. Yeah. And and so this one, I guess they just needed to kind of get that transition for us before the episode actually started. Yeah, I like how they did it. It makes a very clear sort of line in the sand. Yeah. And there is also very clearly a bit where Matthew's monologue would be because the, the monologue music for lack mm-hmm. of a better term, place, but they don't put the monologue in. Right, and we get this wonderful shot of just the car driving, which is, I mean, they have done his voiceover over a car driving before. Maybe yeah. that's why they didn't do it. But it, it very clearly could have been there, and I don't understand from a narrative perspective why they decided not to include it. Was there one in the last episode? No, right? I don't think so. I think they I took it so out. either. When you say last episode, do you mean episode six or episode eight? Episode six. There was one in episode six. Oh, okay. I know there's not in episode eight. I didn't remember episode six. Yeah, this is the first time we've not had it. And it just, it felt, it was a very glaring missing piece to me. It's it's weird because... Like when they started, when I the first time I watched episode two, I'd be like, "Oh, we're doing the the monologue in all of them," and then episode three, I'd be like, "Okay, yep, that's fine." But now that they've taken it out, I'm like, "Why?" Like I didn't particularly like it in every episode, but now that right. it's gone, I'm like, "What have you done?" Exactly, exactly. I think I just want some consistency. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, and I'm curious because uh, I don't think it's in. The next episode either, so I'm really curious about if they're going to bring it back for season two. I think in a previous episode I've mentioned a theory that I read about that that I hope they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you in have. the spoiler spoiler section. Okay. Yeah, I really like that idea, and I hope they take do it. Um, so then Diana has this great line about Madison in the fall being the best Madison there is, and like, I don't know if any of our anybody's ever been to upstate New York in the fall, but it is gorgeous. Everything's orange and red and there's big, beautiful leaves. And 
and stuff. And this is very clearly not that when they then cut to <laughs> dead trees and everything's gray. I'm like, why didn't you just cut that line? Why? Aww. Like, I thought it was still beautiful. It's beautiful in its own way. I don't dislike it, but it's just so clearly not upstate New York. Okay, that's fair. I feel like it could have been. It's just maybe they filmed it later than they meant to because, I mean, the trees were there. They just didn't have leaves on them anymore. If those trees that they showed us had had the fall leaves, the reds and the oranges and the browns, it would have been stunning. But we just got a forest full of trees with no leaves. Uh, From what I remember, because I have done fall in England before, it's very much like it is here where I live in Vancouver in that it's just rainy and gray. It doesn't get that big beautifulness. Not that it's that big of a deal. I just thought it was funny how they, they tried. They did try. And it's also very clear that, or at least I think it is, that the car they're on is still in. Sorry, the car they're in is still an English car. They just do camera angles to not let you see what side of the car the steering wheel is on i wasn't sure about that because it looked very similar to matthew's car Mm -hmm. but i noticed that diana was driving which surprised Mm -hmm. me because i really don't think matthew would let diana drive i'm pretty sure in the book he didn't but then i was looking at the car and i was trying to figure out is is she actually driving? I mean, she's on the side of the car where she would be driving if this was America and she's in America, but they never really showed the dashboard. Yeah. I, in the book, she was too injured to drive. Mm, yeah. So I don't know about that, but I it would make sense for her to drive to her own home. Right. Exactly. I, I prefer to believe that she was actually driving and they just, I don't know, maybe they didn't have the budget for another Tesla, so... <laughs> You know, yeah. they may do with what they had. Uh, so then they arrive at the house. The house. Meet the and house. I, yeah, it's so great. I, I love the house in the book. It's quite possible that in the book, the house is my favorite character. That is absolutely fair. The house is wonderful in the book. It's so temperamental and just like does its version of yelling at them every now and then. It's mm-hmm. so good. And so I'm glad that they kept some of that. They cut out all the ghosts. But still call it haunted. Right. Instead of like a magic house mm-hmm. or an enchanted house, which would have made more sense. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I think for book readers, it made absolutely sense how they did it. Mm-hmm. For non-book readers, it was probably a little more confusing. Yeah. Like it just, it's not very haunted. Right. So much as it's alive. But it's a witch's house. Of course it's haunted. They've cut out a lot of ghosts from the book. Yeah. And what we have seen so far has been unclear if it's a ghost or not. Uh, Diana's vision when she yeah. was in the oubliette. Still unclear. Don't know if that, that was supposed to be her just having a vision or if they were actually there helping her. And we get to meet Tabitha, the cat. I only bring this up because I think she's cute. And I like that they kept her, kept her in. Yes. I wish they had kept a little bit more of Tabitha because in the book, gosh, we keep talking about in the book and I know we have a whole section for in the book, but it just comes out of me when we're talking. 
these the, aren't really spoilery things also they're just little changes yeah yeah so but in the book tabitha really liked matthew and they had a cute little relationship and i yeah. didn't get any of that and i wanted more tabitha really and like tabitha hates diana and it so it's just hilarious that she loves matthew yeah so then we swap over to venice uh, and Agatha's given Baldwin some shit, which I really like. It's fantastic. It's the first time that we've seen Agatha stand up to somebody on the congregation. I mean, she's she's voiced her opinions before, and she's mm-hmm. she's been firm, but this is the first time where she's been almost on the verge of being angry and just saying, no, this is what we want. It was pretty great. Yeah. I also like this bit because it really has all three sections or what have species, I don't know. Um, They all know more than they're saying and they all want Diana for specific reasons, but nobody's really willing to talk about. Like, it's just a really good dynamic going on here. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's everybody is out for themselves, but they all have a common goal to get there. Yeah. Diana being that common goal. I mean, kind of sucks that nobody's really thinking of her as a human person, but oh well. So much is like a thing that they need. Right. And I thought Baldwin did a really good job of putting all the attention onto Satu here and being fulfilling his brotherly duties. Yeah, he's a tricksy little bastard. And I thought it was brilliant because. There wasn't even a hint of him lying or faltering or hesitating. It just came out. This is the direction that we need to go in. And it was splendid. Yeah. I I love show Baldwin. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a fan of book Baldwin, but show Baldwin is fabulous. Mm-hmm. And I liked him actually using the witches to kind of corroborate what Satu had done. Mm-hmm. And forcing Peter to say, well, yeah, it looks like Satu did do this thing and we didn't support it. Yeah. It was nice to see him get called out. It is nice to see Peter get called out. That should happen all the time. <laughs> I hate that man. Yeah. He he did. The actor looked like he was sucking on a lemon while he had to say the words that he was saying about Satu, you know, and it was just, it was incredible. You could see how much it hurt him to admit there was a witch doing something he didn't know she was doing. And, and he did look sickly here. Like, I genuinely wondered if the actor was ill. Mm. He kind of looked sick the whole episode. Yeah. Hence the, this is the one where Peter knocks sweats. <laughs> but Why? Just seems an odd character choice for him to look so, so ill. I don't know. Unless it's just the stress of being out of control. Maybe he just can't handle the feeling of not being in control of everything. And it makes him come undone. Maybe. Because he strikes me as the type of person who thinks that he is always in control. Yeah. I mean, you remember just, it was last episode or the episode before where he attacked Satu in their yeah. own archive at the congregation for going against him. And he already knew she was so much more powerful than him, but he still 100% absolutely believes that he can control her. And I think him learning that he doesn't have everything as under control as he thought just 
probably does make him sick. It makes him feel ill and like the world is upside down. Yeah, that's fair. Then we get to cut back to Madison and we finally get everybody all together. It's really good. It is really good. Can we talk about how amazing Sarah is in the scene before we talk about how awesome they all are together? Did you notice the bumper stickers on her car? I like I did, but they're the exact bumper stickers that are mentioned in the book. So I remembered them from there, too. Okay, okay. I deposit so I could write down what they all say. But she has one that says, I am pagan and I vote. Yeah. She has one that says, Wiccan army, we will not go silently into the night. And she has one that says, my other car is a broom. I, I love them in and of themselves. And I love that they kept that detail from the book. And I love that, like, the I am pagan and I vote seems very timely. But this book was written in 2009, you know? Right. Yes. And yes. I, I love that. I love that it's, okay, well, maybe it sucks that it still has to be a thing, mm-hmm. but. Well, I love that it's yeah. so unapologetic about who Sarah is. I mean, because yes. not only do we have all of these bumper stickers, they're all on a Jeep Wagoneer, and she's yes. wearing a pussy hat. So, I mean, they have just given us Sarah for who Sarah is, and it's utterly spot on and unapologetic and i love it Mm -hmm. like we don't even need her to talk at this point and we know exactly who she is yes i mean of course we've already seen her in previous episodes but this is this is where we really get her instead of her just yelling at diana about magic Mm -hmm. and and i like that we see that she's okay telling everyone who she is Mm -hmm. you know like this is the car she drives around town in and I love that about Sarah. It's so different than what we've seen of, of witches in England. Oh, yeah. Witches in England are so uptight. <laughs> but even even Diana, right? She wasn't really, you know, she's not comfortable wearing her witchiness on her sleeve. Yeah, that's true. Gosh, can you imagine Sarah and Jillian in the same room together? No. I can't imagine Sarah raising Diana. Like, like I can, and it's hilarious. But they're so different. Yeah. I think that's, I can imagine M raising Diana. Yeah. And so I think that's why it works for me. But I, I would almost really like to see some flashbacks of teenage Diana in Sarah's house. Yeah. Which I know we just... get in later, in the later books. I don't know if they'll do it in the show, but. Yeah. Like, they must have just been yelling at each other all the time. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> And then it's real tense right away. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Like, Diana gives no fucks. She says, she doesn't say hi. She doesn't say anything. She just, she stalks up. Did you know I was spellbound? Like, she just drops this bomb in front of everybody. Yeah. And I, I really love that it's M who knew, knew what was going on and not, not Sarah. Because mm-hmm. it just really shows the dynamics between all of them. And that M was always considered a part of the family. And I love mm-hmm. that. And I I just love Valerie Pettiford as as Emily here. She's so good. I mean, Alex Kingston is also very good, but Valerie Pettiford just sells this character so so very, very well. Mm-hmm. And everybody in this scene is amazing. And I love them. Yeah, I was struck in this episode. By just how involved M was mm-hmm. in the family. She has more dialogue than Sarah does. She's 
comforting Diana more than Sarah does. And if you didn't know the family dynamic, you would almost expect M to be the one who's biologically related to Mm -hmm. Diana and Sarah to be the one who is M's partner and not the other way around. Although, again, I like that because I love the dynamic between Sarah and Diana and and the the differences and how they play off each other. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And it, it absolutely speaks to their personalities. I mean, I believe that the way they've portrayed it is absolutely true to the mm-hmm. character personalities. This is how if these people were real, this is how they would relate to one another. And if I'm remembering correctly from the book, but even before she met Sarah, M was uh Rebecca's best friend. Like I think that's how they met. Yes. So I love mm-hmm. that that shows through in the the relationship, even though we don't see too much of it, but we do get this feeling that M was involved with their lives even, well, like, was just always involved with their lives. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And in the, the flashback scene later, you see that M and Rebecca yeah. were close, that, that Rebecca trusted her. So I like that, that was good. And just in general, I think, and this is true for the whole show, I would say, because it's such a paranormal fantasy it would be so easy for the actors to not really give it their all, but they really do. And it's really shown very clearly in this episode with how emotional Em and Sarah get and how just, I just really like that the actors didn't treat this like a garbage show, you know? Right. Well, even Diana in this episode, in this conversation that we're, that we're talking about when, when she confronts them about being spellbound, you know, she, she asks, what was wrong with me? Why did they mm-hmm. do this to me? You know, you don't spellbound somebody for no reason. And you can just see, God, and you can hear it in her voice. You can see it on her face. She is utterly mm-hmm. broken at the knowledge that someone did this to her. And it was just, it was an amazing performance mm-hmm. to watch. And, and to see her doing that, Next to Valerie Pettiford also being just as emotionable. Emotionable. <laughs> wow, that's not a word. Valerie Pettiford being just as emotional. It it was emotional. I need another word besides emotional, but it was mm-hmm. impactful. How about that? Yeah, it was. And it it really gave weight to the to what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that. I mean, as much as this show and the books, I guess, get compared to Twilight. Like the, it was always very clear in Twilight that the actors thought it was garbage. Like they would say that in mm-hmm. interviews, and people like right. joke about it. And I love that that is mm-hmm. just not the case here. Yeah, they enjoy yeah. the material. They love the characters they're playing, and they love to play those characters. And it comes across yeah. the screen. I think for everybody, even characters like Domenico and Satu. Yes, definitely. Ah, oh, Domenico. Yes. Oh, we'll get to him later. Um. <laughs> I also just really loved how in the middle of the all this emotional arguing or what have you, I Matthew just sits down on the couch and is like, I will just be over here. Yeah. It's so good. And also, <laughs> like, Diana's dressed in her regular light blue and Sarah and M are in, I, I can't even describe their style, but, like, thrift store patchwork almost. And then 
but still yeah. different. Like they both have that kind of thrift store mm-hmm. vibe, but done very, very differently. M is more elegant and put together, but in this like flowy yeah. kind of way. And Sarah's in this, I'm going to wear overalls that I got from the thrift yeah. store kind of way. And she always, it's really strange. She always looks like she's come from a science experiment, but like not, not a good one. If that makes sense. Yes. That yeah. is perfect. Like, like a Dexter's laboratory type of situation. <laughs> right. I love it. That's exactly And then what like it beside is. them is Matthew and his all black with like looking very elegant and put together. And it's, it's hilarious. I love it. Oh yeah. He's the only one of the bunch yeah. he's put together. Until we get Miriam and Marcus yeah. later. <laughs> Uh, and then Diana runs off and Matthew and Sarah say their first words to each other, which are, of course, a bit of a confrontation. And I love it. Absolutely. But I love that Matthew's first words to Sarah are him trying to protect Diana. Yes. Because he's trying to let Sarah or he's trying to get Sarah to leave Diana alone. Let Diana have some space. And Sarah's just like, don't you tell me what to do in my own house. Yeah, it's so good. It is pretty great. And then the house decides to solve the argument by flashing back and showing what happened. Good old house. Yeah. I like the way they did this in the show. I wasn't sure how they were going to do it, but it it worked for me. Did it work for you? Yes. Yes, it did. So the house decides, well, I'm going to make you guys stop arguing and I'm just going to show you what happened and you'll understand. And so we immediately jumped to... uh, young diana gosh she's probably eight eight or Mm -hmm. nine in her bed with her parents there and this is clearly the scene where they are doing the spellbinding of Mm -hmm. her and uh, i hate the inconsistency that we get here because the imagery that we've always gotten around diana and her magic has been spiders and spider webs Mm -hmm. it's the same imagery that we actually get in this scene like she's being wrapped in spider webs but the story that her mother tells her about what they're doing and why they're doing it uses colorful ribbons. I guess it might be that, that like, uh, everybody's name just left my head for a second there, sorry, that Rebecca's trying to reassure Diana by using the word ribbons. You know what I mean? Maybe. Yeah. Like, the show isn't thinking of them as ribbons, but Rebecca wants Diana to think of them as ribbons. That makes me feel a little bit better about it. But yes, they should have just picked one and stuck with it. Right. So I feel like they're trying to stick with the books as their ribbon. So we're going to keep that when people talk Mm -hmm. about it. But we really like the spider thing because it makes it more dramatic and we can put these jump scares in. So we're going to really just show it this other way. And speaking of spiders, this might be a good time to jump to Anya in the lab. Because we've got some spider things to talk about. Why does it always have to be spiders? <laughs> so this week, instead of uh, beating the dead horse of me complaining about genetics, I thought it would be cool to talk about spiders. Um, since we find out in this episode what is the deal with the spiders that um, have been showing up. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the symbolism and a little bit about biology. 
Um, and so you had mentioned in the first episode that in the book, it's not spiders um, that are shown when she's sleeping to symbolize her being spellbound. It's ribbons. And so I haven't heard the episode that you've recorded with just each other, but I was curious what your thoughts were on, like, why spiders? Just why spiders? Well, it's spiders for spoilery reasons that we can't say yet. Ooh, okay. (laughs) You don't even know yet because you haven't read all of the books. That's interesting then that the spiders are both spoilery, but also like new to the TV show from the books. And I guess you can't really talk about why, but. Yeah. It is interesting though, because when in in this episode, when the house shows the flashback of Diana being spellbound. Mm Mm-hmm. The story that her mom tells her while her dad is doing the spell uses ribbons, and she still kept the ribbons, as in her magic is being covered and hidden by ribbons. But all of the visual imagery that we get in the show is the spiders and the spider webs. Mm-hmm. I do also think they decided to go with spiders because they're more atmospheric than, you know, pretty ribbons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're like, certainly in Western culture, they're like, very creepy and mysterious um and i was like trying to think about where that comes from or like images in pop culture of where spiders are being kind of like creepy and threatening um and the two ones that really came to mind for me were shelob in lord of the rings and then aragog and all of his children in harry potter i'm going to very pointedly not talk about lord of the rings here (laughs) <laughs> oh come on i thought that was just like giving you the perfect in well it's it's fine i'll go on a whole spider rant about no do it's better what, this do way you what do you what no i want your spider rant that's my whole point of being here is to encourage spider rants oh no no there's too much content well i just think it's interesting how she love you know she hates light of any kind but she's kind of descended from this spider who eats light and covets it so it's She's an interesting character. Interesting. Okay. So we did a little bit of research just to see the different ways that spiders are represented and and kind of what they symbolize uh, in other non-Western literatures and and also maybe instances in European literature where they're not as creepy and mysterious and maybe helpful in other ways. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit about other ways that spiders uh, are used to emphasize my thesis for this segment, which is that spiders are not just creepy and mysterious. They're also like really cool and awesome. So I think the main one that people have heard about is probably Anansi the spider, who's a West African folktale character. And of course, through the uh, slavery diaspora, he also is a very important character in uh, Caribbean culture and mythology. Um, And so... Uh, Nancy is very clever and cunning and um, is often used uh, to symbolize like wisdom and intelligence. Um, And then particularly in the Caribbean, he's often celebrated as a symbol of resistance to slavery and survival in the face of slavery. Um, And so he's often like uses his cleverness and trickery to turn the tables on more powerful people who are trying to take advantage of him. Um, so that's, I think, one really cool way that that's, uh, spiders have been represented in, in a more positive and interesting way. 
So in a lot of different Southwestern Native American cultures, um, including the Hopi and the Navajo, um, they have a grandmother spider figure in their mythology who's actually the creator of the whole universe, um, which I think makes sense on kind of an intuitive level, right? Because like spiders weave webs, they're like make things, creating creating things that are um, like outside of themselves. And then spiders are often also appear in stories and mythology as helpers and teachers. Um, so again, like a really positive, fun representation of spiders. And then my final example for for like spiders in cultural mythology actually comes from Scotland, which is, I think, kind of relevant for the show. I mean, mm-hmm. it's at least on the same island. Um, and so I did not know this, but I'm sure Scottish listeners are very familiar with the legend of Robert the Bruce and the spider in the cave. And so Robert the Bruce was a, a military leader in Scotland who was fighting for liberation from England. And the legend goes that after uh, fighting the English for a long time and having some kind of like disappointing losing battles, he ended up uh, taking refuge in a cave. And so while he was um, trapped in this cave, taking refuge and feeling kind of sorry for himself, um, he watched this spider uh, attempting to like do this specific move several times and he watched the spider fail and fail again and it failed six times which was like the number of of times that he had failed to defeat the english and he told himself that if the spider tried again and succeeded on the seventh time then he would also try again and so the spider succeeded and then he tried again and was able to succeed. So in that case, the spiders are really representing sort of like persistence. Um, I think it's interesting that the one sort of spider tale you haven't included here is the the Greek one of Arachne, who, you know, was famously a better weaver than Athena. So Athena turned her into the first spider. Yeah. And I guess I didn't necessarily include that one because I wasn't really sure. Like, like, I feel like the fact... I don't know. The connection there is a little bit superficial, right? It's just kind of like weaving and it's there's not like like I don't think it really reflects on Arachne's personality characteristics or anything in a way that the other stories do. But you're right. That is like probably the most famous spider story. And it's where we get the word arachnid, um, right, which is like the group that spiders belong to. So spiders are arthropods, which is the larger group of, of insects, crustaceans, arachnids um, and like centipedes and millipedes all very creepy (laughs) or very awesome depending on your perspective i mean it's nice that they eat mosquitoes but other than that i mean so they eat mosquitoes they also eat a lot of other insect pests um, like agricultural pests and yeah and that's one of the reasons why sometimes you can get Uh, unexpected effects of using pesticides because if you're like trying to kill a pest insect and you use pesticides that kill not only the insects but all of their predators most pests are sort of like better at bouncing back and so you can actually end up accidentally increasing the amount of pests that you have because you like wipe them out temporarily but then you also wipe out all of their predators and then when they come back there's nothing keeping them in check that is also creepy Yeah, so I guess the other reason why I love spiders is just because I think they're really fun to watch. They make cool webs. 
you know, they're like sit and wait predators. And so um, it's really cool to just kind of like sit and watch them hang out, move around. I don't know. I'm, it's probably just because I'm a biologist at heart, but you know, there are very few organisms that I couldn't just like sit and watch for hours and be fascinated by. You know, I have nothing against spiders if they are A, not in my house, and B, of like a decent size. You know, if they're too big, no thank you. I can't, I can't do that. But if they're... So like, what's your like ideal spider size? Like quarter smaller or like, is it more about the body size or the legs too? Oh, the body. Oh, no, a big body. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Nope. Before you said that, I probably wouldn't have known, but then I pictured like a big bodied spider and it made me feel not good. <laughs> Which I think is really a shame, right? Because, I mean, at least in North America, they're... Most spiders are not dangerous. They're not going to hurt you. Um, They're definitely doing more good than bad. And so I think it would be great if people could maybe like tone down their arachnophobia a little bit and just, you know, if you see a spider in your house, just try and like catch it in a jar and then maybe put it outside or something. Yeah, sure. That's that's what I'll do. Yep. Okay, well, uh, sounds like I haven't really convinced you uh, that spiders it, are great. It's more, it's, I, objectively speaking, I can say, yes, great, wonderful. But when I see one inside, I, the, nope, my brain just stops working. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. And I think that's totally why they put the spiders in the TV show, right? Like, that's what they were going for. They wanted to get that just kind of like, Ooky, creepy reaction out of people and so uh based on your reaction to it that was probably a good choice i think your audience reaction is much more typical than mine um which is like ooh, what kind are they <laughs> big they're big that's the answer yeah <laughs> and so to close out on this spider segment i just wanted to uh give a shout out to one of my favorite like citizen science outreach accounts uh which is a twitter account called Uh, recluse or not and it's run by a really great team of spider scientists and so basically if you find a spider and you're not sure if it is a brown recluse or not you can take a picture and then tweet it to them with your location and time of year Um, and then they will tell you to the best of their ability if it is a recluse or not Um, and they are compiling all of that data into a data set that they're going to analyze to look at not only like where are actual brown recluse spiders, but what are the most common types of spiders that people mistake for brown recluses um, and that kind of thing. So uh, it's a really cool project. And if you find a brown spider in your house and you're afraid it might be a brown recluse, I highly recommend sending them a picture uh, to set yourself at ease. Or maybe not if it is an actual brown recluse. Um. <laughs> the opposite of setting yourself at ease. <laughs> Yeah. Freak yourself out. Burn the house down. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, that's basically all I had this week. I didn't think we learned too much more about uh, the science um, behind the main plot. And it was a good episode, but I didn't have anything else particularly to say about it. All right. Well, then I think that's it. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for stopping by my lab and I'll see you next week. After those really great facts about spiders, everyone's favorite arachnid, we get some super creepy Peter Knox. 
everyone's favorite man in a wig. Oh, God, it's so bad, that wig. <laughs> it was really bad. I'm not usually the type of person to notice wigs. Like, uh, Valerie Pettiford's wearing a wig, too, that apparently, I don't know, people have said they don't like. It doesn't bother me at all. But, oh, Peter, it's bad. I feel like the only way that they try to age men down is to give them not gray hair and make it longer. <laughs> and it just didn't work. No. It did not work for me. Like, it would have just... I probably wouldn't have noticed at all if they had just made him look exactly the same. I would have bought it. But then they had to put this wig on him and completely distract from the entire scene. Yeah. But it it, it does kind of... He's still creepy, though, with wanting to test this little girl. And ugh, ugh, I hate him. Mm-hmm. I hate him. Yep. So, the... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I was racking my brain while I was rewatching this this morning, um, and I'm trying not to conflate the book with the show, which is hard to do, obviously, since we keep talking about the book, too. <laughs> yeah. But the show seems to me to be very unclear on why Peter is so concerned about Diana and and what exactly it is about her power that he's afraid of. I don't think he's afraid of it. I think he wants it. Like, he wants to control it. There's a good line later in the episode that Satu says to Peter that I think really uh, Mm. says, really sort of makes it clear what Peter's after. Okay. Yeah, I remember that line, and and I think that, that makes perfect sense, and I know we'll talk about it when we get there. But I was just thinking, especially watching the flashbacks and watching Rebecca and Steven be so afraid, feeling unclear of what the driving motivation is behind that fear. I always thought, and again, this might be stuff that I'm getting from the book, so maybe the show isn't doing this very well, but I always thought that if Peter had found that Diana was very powerful, because she wouldn't just have Rebecca's power, she would have Steven's power too. And I think it's talked about in this episode um, again, later on with Satu and Ox, that Stephen was very secretive and didn't mm-hmm. didn't really let people know all that he could do. So I think Peter thought Diana would be very powerful. And if he tested her and found that she was, I would assume he would have taken her away. Mm. And raised, you know, under pretense of the congregation needing to help and protect young powerful witches or whatever but basically would have raised her to be his puppet. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because Peter Knox would do some shady shit like that for sure. All right. Again, I don't think that's laid out clearly, but I don't think it's a big jump to make either. Right. I mean, they clearly set up that there's this power struggle and that Peter Knox wants power. Yeah. But I just feel like it's kind of unclear about why Diana is in the middle of all of this and why he was looking for her as a child, I guess. And I guess it's just because he knew how powerful, at at the very least, he knew how powerful Rebecca was and how powerful Stephen's family was. Mm -hmm. And so his expectation was they would combine to create this really powerful witch. And he'd already tried to control Rebecca and failed. Right. So he thought, you know, if he'd got... Diana when she was young. A lot of this is just conjecture, but... Right, right, of course. Okay. 
what I don't understand is if Rebecca and Stephen were so powerful, why did any of this happen? Like, why did they have to go away? And like, I can I can see where they have to go away and draw Knox away from Diana. But then, how does Knox get the better of them? How I don't, you know if they're both so powerful, why? How did Knox kill them? So I have some headcanon here. Okay. So I expect Rebecca and Stephen, more Rebecca than Stephen, based on what we know and what I know from reading the books. But I suspect they're kind of like Harry Potter. Okay. And you know how in – you've read all the Harry Potter books, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm, people who haven't read them, I'm going to spoil a little bit here. But at the beginning of book seven – the Death Eaters figured out which Harry was the real Harry because he was the one who went for the disarming spell instead of the actual offensive spell. Right. Because it was so fundamental in his character that he didn't want to hurt people. I feel like Rebecca and Stephen were the same way. They are good people. They believe in good magic. Peter Knox has dabbled in bad magic or dark magic. They would never do that. And so I feel like Knox was stronger than them because of his dark magic and because they wouldn't stoop to his level hmm. in that sort of same way. doesn't fit with things. My head canon. You don't think so? It, it, there's specific things about Rebecca in particular in the book that that okay. doesn't particularly jive with. I can understand where you're coming from that. Maybe they didn't want to fight him. Maybe they, mm-hmm. maybe he took them unawares. I don't know, but it just seems like they knew like in the goodbye scene in the flashback, they're, you can tell that they know they're never going to see their family again. Mm-hmm. So they know that they're drawing Knox away for him to kill them. And I I don't understand. Yeah. Maybe they'll address it later. Maybe, maybe they thought if they let him kill them, he would give up. You know, he would. He would... Maybe. Because at that point, he had already tested Diana yeah. and thought she didn't have power. And so if they were dead, then he would think the power is just gone. And maybe yeah. Diana would be safe. Maybe. Like, I guess that makes sense. But it just seems a shame to that that was their lives then, you know? Yeah. Maybe that's why I don't like it. It just seems like a big old waste. Fucking Knox. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking Knox. Oh, I wish that could be our episode title. Yeah. <laughs> iTunes will not allow it. That's unfortunate. Effing Knox. Maybe I'll do that. I do like right at the end of the flashback, you can hear the little girl's English accent creep in when she says definitely, and it's adorable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I just thought that was cute, so I wanted to bring it up. A good <laughs> transition back into happier things. Right. So then we're back into not flashback, and Diana runs off, this time successfully. The house doesn't stop her. And she finds that's a lot to deal with. I mean, she just learned a lot of shit about her past and and her parents. She leaves her scarf on the forest floor. It's fine. The blue scarf with the blue sweater. I think she's wearing blue jeans, too. So. (laughs) okay. Matthew eventually follows. And as much as this is a very serious scene, with them having a nice talk about what they've all just learned and how her parents knew about Matthew and that sort of thing. All I can really notice is when Matthew walks up, he goes down this slope and Diana like goes up the slope so that they're kind of almost eye level, but Matthew is still significantly taller than her. 
And it's just, it's just hilarious how much shorter than Matthew Diane is. Yeah, I didn't even notice that at all. That's so funny. I don't know why I noticed these things, but... I was appreciating how the scene is juxtaposed next to the, the previous scene where she was just so distraught about finding out that she was spellbound, having him confirm it. Mm-hmm. And and then in this scene, she's accepting what happened to her because she understands that her parents did it out of love and protection. Mm-hmm. And having having her go from one to the other so quickly is actually kind of believable. Like, I think I, I, I bought it and I enjoyed the scene because then she was able to have fun and they were really cute whenever they started making out in the woods. Yeah. I think it you buy it because it was you know she wasn't just told that that's what her parents were thinking she was shown it mm-hmm. right you know and she was shown about how upset they were about leaving her and what had happened and that they weren't sure that they'd made the right choice yeah you know so I, I think that's why it's believable and then we get ghost Rebecca yeah briefly smiling at them as they make out a little bit creepy and weird, but I get what they were going for. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> I think we're supposed to think that her parents approve of Matthew. And are, yeah, and are happy that she's found her way back to her magic now. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's the piece that really helped Diana accept it because we learned that most people who are spellbound just never get their magic back. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. Um, especially if the person who spellbound you dies because it's that person who has to release you. But because Diana is special and her parents were special, it was bound to need and somehow Matthew as well. Mm -hmm. And her knowing that and experiencing all of the things that she has experienced, I think, put those pieces together for her and it just kind of unlocked that acceptance. Yes, it was very, very good. And then we get probably my favorite scene in the episode with Sarah and M on the couch. Mm-hmm. And it's so good. And you can just feel how upset Sarah is about how Rebecca didn't trust her. And it just how it's just such a good scene between them. I wish we'd gotten like a whole episode of just Sarah and M. I love them. Yes. I love the scene too. It's it's definitely Probably my favorite in the episode as well, mm-hmm. although there's some really good stuff in this episode. There is. But I love Alex Kingston's choice to refuse to look mm-hmm. at M. Mm-hmm. Like she physically has her body turned away. She is talking to M, but she's looking like steadfastly in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And you can just like her heartbreak and her her sadness is just emanating from her like you can see it almost yeah and it's just it's so good i think that's why i like it it's a tough scene to watch for sure it is yeah and i, I like that they so good yeah it's tough because they sell it so well mm-hmm. like it's yeah it's kind of a weird thing when you think about it like she's upset that her sister spellbound her daughter and didn't trust or whatever and didn't trust her to tell her what was going on. And, like, it's kind of a weird, like, it's not really based in reality, I guess. But, 
Alex Kingston does a good job of getting the emotion across, and the chemistry mm-hmm. between the two of them is so good. Yeah, yeah. I kind of want to see a spinoff of just Sarah and Em. I do, too. Like, Can we get Sarah and Em the college years? Oh, my God. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so good. Yeah, we should, we should like, start a petition or something for that. Yeah. I bet there's some fanfic out there already. Oh. Maybe, I don't know. The fanfic tends to just be Matthew and Diana. Maybe we have a listener who likes to write fanfic and we'll write that for us. Ooh, the college years. I like it. I will stay up till 4 a.m. reading that. (laughs) Right? So then we get to Venice. Do we have to? Unfortunately, as much as I'd rather just stay at the Bishop Claremont funhouse right (laughs) and we're in peter knox's room and setu is sitting beside him he's asleep although he's not sleeping very well and she has his little magic ball thing Mm -hmm. i hesitated before i said magic ball because my mind went to the gutter sorry (laughs) which i like that role reversal there so peter is asleep and sweating again and looking very ill, and then he wakes up, and they have a very interesting conversation. Because I think until now, Knox has been trying to manipulate Satu, and like get her to be his puppet, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very clear here that she's not going to be his puppet, but they still sort of come to an understanding. Yeah, like my whole reaction to the scene is they have a really fucked up relationship. Yeah. Like the kind where she can actually say, this is why I betrayed you. But then they still come together and like you said, some sort of understanding where they're not trying to kill each other or hate each other. They still their mutual desire of power is above all else and it's just weird and it, i think I, I do think it comes from two different places but so when, when they're talking uh setu realizes that Knox was the one who killed the bishops rebecca and stephen mm-hmm. and that he used an opening spell on them and Knox says something like rebecca could have been on the congregation and blah 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 blah, blah and then says it was so selfish of her to keep to not do that to keep the power from him i guess mm-hmm. and god yeah. i wanted to punch him in his fucking face when he said that has he ever said anything that didn't make you want to punch him in the face i mean sometimes he lies <laughs> and he pretends okay. to no because even then i know he's lying right uh, and then after they talk it out setu says and this is the line i was referring to before um you loved her but the power you sensed you loved that more and, yeah, and- I think that is the most aware of Peter Knox that anybody has ever been. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's a very clear what he was after and why he did the things he did. Mm-hmm. And then I guess what brings them together really is Satu mentions the prophecy. Yeah. And how Diana could be, could destroy the vampires, as this prophecy says. And so they have to get her away from Matthew. I don't know. I guess that gives them a common purpose. I guess. 
it just watching it just felt so wrong though because clearly these two people have worked against each other at this point they're both powerful they've both tried to manipulate the other and in this conversation they're basically acknowledging these things and then saying oh well it's okay we're gonna still continue to do these things and it's just it's weird and we've just weird one thing that we did learn in the last episode i think that Satu is more powerful than Nox. Mm-hmm. And Nox probably doesn't like that. So that's just another, like, fucked up bit in their relationship. Right? The power differential has definitely shifted. Mm-hmm. I, I, I hate them, but I hope we get more of them. Yes. That's the only way I can really explain that. I'm interested to see how their relationship plays out to... Mm -hmm. since i know how things end right i'm interested to see how that happens and then we go back to the fun house thank god yay and we get a scene that's just matthew and sarah which i wish we'd had five more like this episode could have been two hours long and just Mm -hmm. more more fun house shenanigans yeah i wish honestly i wish we had had like at least two more episodes in the season so that we could flesh out some of this stuff at the house. Yeah. And like Matthew and Sarah, because Matthew and Sarah come to this mutual respect of their love of Diana. Mm-hmm. And like, we don't really get to see much of that process because we get to see the fun of them butting heads, mm-hmm. but that's really all we get. Yeah, we don't get to see them come to an understanding. Right. Although we do see them, well, never mind. That's next episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I love their little argument here and the way that they both just make, like, they give each other looks without pointing those looks at each other, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. And it's just really good. Yeah. And I... I like... No, go I, ahead. I love Sarah's line, uh... You're trying to scare me, but I'm already scared. I'm doing the best I can. Yeah, I like that we get Sarah coming at it from a purely logical perspective of, you know, she needs to start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And we get Matthew coming from the perspective of, no, she needs to protect herself now. So we need to do these really big things. And then even though it's kind of just a, a throwaway line, you know, Sarah says, you know, people haven't been able to do those things in centuries. Or years or however long she says. And it's just, it's another little thread of the idea that witches are losing their powers. Yes. And it's just thrown in in such a way that makes perfect sense. And if you don't pay attention to it, it's fine. But if you notice it, it's a great way to tie this piece of the puzzle back into this full story that we started way back in Matthew's lab in Oxford. Yes, that is a very good point. Eventually Diana comes in and makes peace between the two of them, I guess. Basically says she'll do both. Which I think is funny. Yeah. And yeah. then we get some magic training, and it's not going too well. No. Not really. It's okay. We're just gonna try. <laughs> she gets so frustrated. It's great. Oh, I would too. I, I don't know if I would have been as gracious if I had been in her position. I would. I am a very impatient person, and I probably would have like thrown that book across the room 
honestly, for being real. It's hard to say for me because it like me is me. I feel like, oh my God, I can do magic. I don't care that it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, but if I'd grown up knowing that magic was real, I'd probably feel differently about it. Okay, that's a fair point. Yes. Like, if I just learned this stuff right now, I would not be frustrated at all. I'd be like, oh, okay, it's just going to take practice, but it's so cool. Yeah. I can light fire, even if it's the wrong thing on fire. Yeah, like I burned down the house, but man, it was cool. Right? Yeah. And then we get this terrible conversation between Matthew and M. And like the actors do their utmost best with it, but it was just very poorly written and I don't like how they did it. Mm-hmm. But basically, they're setting up time walking as a thing that happens. Yeah, this is the first time we've heard the words time walker on the show, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, okay, so clearly they tried because they did set up foreshadowing of time walking in episode one. Mm-hmm. When Diana bumped into her dad, or she thinks she bumped into her dad mm-hmm. outside of the bod, but we haven't we haven't heard about time walking since then. There's been nothing since that first episode that even hints at this. Yeah, and so it feels like it comes completely out of left field, and it it just it's so very clearly a setup for what's about to happen that mm-hmm. like I just wish. Matthew, I wish he'd found the box, commented on how he thought it was like from the 17th century or whatever century he says, and just had M kind of be like, uh, you know, make a sound. And then that's mm-hmm. it. Yes. And then he could have come to the realization in that next scene. When, she, yeah, when she actually disappears. Because having him just say, I would swear this was new. Was he a time walker? You know, like... How do you make that leap that quickly? Yeah, and then the very next scene, him being like, oh, you time walked. Like, it's just so, it's just so poorly written. Yeah, it was definitely, like, it was an exposition dump. It was like they just gave up. They were like, yeah. we need this information in the episode, so we're just going to do it, and we're not going to try. And I just, it, it could have been slightly better with not much work. Yes. Especially for something that's so important. Mm-hmm to the plot that we're going to see in the next episode. Yeah. But whatever. We're introduced to time walking. And then we go back to Venice. And we get Domenico and Juliet here. And I love this scene because we're really starting to see that Domenico is a manipulative little fucker. And I love it. Yeah. It's so good. Like, I have no idea what Domenico actually wants, what his end goal is. He literally just seems to be an agent of chaos. Yes, that's exactly what I think it Mm -hmm. is. But I love that we've been asking this question since the beginning of the season. Yeah. Because he's so consistent in such a way that doesn't give us answers. Yeah. And, And, like, I think there was a time when you, the show wanted you to think that Domenico wanted Juliet, but I don't think he does. I think he just wants Mm-mm. to use her like every other man that she's ever met. I think I, I think he wants power. I think he wants the power that the Declaremonts represent. Mm-hmm. And which is why most of the chaos that he's sowing has to do with Matthew and his family. Yeah. But we have no actual motivation. Like we don't know. Like you said, we don't know what his goal is. We don't know 
why he's doing what he's doing or what he wants to get out of mm-hmm. it. Because honestly, from my perspective, is if the Declaremonts get knocked out of power, Jer Bear is going to step into that vacuum. I'm not sure that Domenico would benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Maybe he thinks he would, or maybe he thinks he can manipulate Jer Bear out of it too. I don't know. Well, one thing that I like is that he seems to want power, but he doesn't seem to want it in an obvious, like, I want the head seat way. He wants to be in the background controlling things. Right. And so he's... Which, and that's exactly what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, he's he's sowing all of this discord and he's doing all of this manipulation without anybody really seeing it. Mm-hmm. And it's great. Yeah. Uh, and the actor is so good. Uh, it's a great little scene. Very short. Yeah. I love that he's the one who ends up with Satu in the end of this episode. Yeah. Which I know we're going to talk about when we get there, but it's just all of his scheming is paying off. We just don't exactly know how yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then we go back to Madison and we do the bit that we just sort of referred to where Diana time walks uh, after mm-hmm. arguing with Sarah. Yeah, I I really like the scene. She has a line. So they she's really frustrated. Sarah's really frustrated because they they're doing more magical training and Sarah is teaching Diana what she knows and it's just not working for Diana. She can't get it right. And Diana is self-aware enough to know that and she says to Sarah, "Your magic works differently than my magic." And the look on Sarah's face when she kind of realizes that she can't help Diana. Mm-hmm. Aww. It's so sad. Like, it is. It is really sad. But I love that Diana is getting comfortable enough with herself and her own magic to understand this about herself. Like, she's not internalizing this as, I can't do magic. She's internalizing this as, this is not the kind of magic that I can do. Mm -hmm. And that's so far ahead of where she was even two episodes ago. And it's also interesting to note because previously matthew has said she can do spell work like her her markers or whatever right uh, showed that so why she can't do this particular spell work is interesting Mm -hmm. poor sarah though i just want to give her a hug this whole episode i know like i feel like nothing happy happens to her in this episode other than at least having diana back at home yeah and then in frustration, Diana, like, throws her hands up in the air and disappears. Dun, dun, dun. And reappears out in, I guess it's a barn? Yeah. I know, they don't have animals, so. And Matthew runs out there to make sure that she's okay and is like, oh, you just time-walked, because your father could time-walk, because we just set that up two seconds ago. <laughs> right? Yes, that is exactly how that scene went down. Yep. And what I do like about the scene is that apparently while filming in the barn, uh, Matthew and Teresa could not stop laughing. And you can kind of tell that they're just ridiculously grinning at each other in this scene. Yes. That actually made that scene make more sense to me Mm -hmm. when I read your note about that. Because I was thinking the scene is very, very light in a moment where it really shouldn't be quite this light. Like they shouldn't be laughing their way through these lines. Yeah. So knowing that they were just having fun while they were filming it made it make more sense. I also think it's why they like kiss and the camera immediately cuts away. Like it's immediately a wide shot. (laughs) (laughs) And then we cut back to London or Venice somewhere. 
and it's, it's probably it's London, one of I my think. other favorite scenes. Yeah, I think they're in Hamish's office, so we get Agatha and Hamish together, my two favorite demons. It's really good. I'm glad we got to see because I don't think we ever see them together in the books. I don't think so. So I like that we got this scene. Yeah, it was pretty great to kind of bring everything together, mm-hmm. like to bring our worlds, our different worlds together. Yeah. And I, yeah, it was, I like, I just like their characters. And so just watching them talk to each other, I don't care what they talk about. I'm going to like it. And I like that it's clear that they know each other, you know, that they have a, like a working mm-hmm. relationship, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hamish knows who Sophie and Nat are. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, I kind of wonder why Hamish isn't on the congregation, and although, like, like Agatha seems to know about his friendship with Matthew, so maybe that's why, or maybe he just doesn't want to be. I don't know, but he seems like a well-known demon who's like not suffered from the things that demons usually suffer from. If that yeah. makes any sort of sense, so. I just kind of wonder why he wouldn't be at least considered for the congregation. I suspect he doesn't want to be. Yeah, that's true. He strikes me as somebody who wants power from behind the scenes. Or doesn't want power at all, really. I don't know. Maybe power is the wrong word. But he, I mean, he, he obviously has some sort of a power in the world. He's very successful. He controls money and he does some things in the government you know and so it just makes me feel like he he likes knowing things and being good at things yeah that's he that's how i always interpreted i guess that he likes using his quote-unquote abilities and mm -hmm. just because of how they work in the world that gets him a certain amount of influence but it's never been the influence that he's after he just enjoys what he does yeah yeah i think that's a good way to put it Mm -hmm. And I do really love how he says what you think Diana's the savior of the demons. It's just such a ridiculous line. <laughs> it is a ridiculous line. But it's good. I like it. And neither of them laughed. Mm-hmm. It was delivered very seriously. More professional than Matthew and Teresa. <laughs> very much so, yes. And then we go to church with the vampires. I don't... Okay, so I'm not a church-going person. I have been to Catholic Mass or Catholic... Uh, ceremonies no that's not a word no it is mass catholic church does mass yes right no but i i've been to weddings oh okay. that's the only okay. like catholic situations i've ever been involved in in the church and there okay. were like rules about what you could wear yes and i just don't think uh juliet is uh adhering <laughs> she, she looks too good you know like she lo- she just looks very sexy and amazing in that dress and it just doesn't seem very churchy to me, is all I'm saying. Yeah. No, it wasn't churchy. I mean, it wasn't immodest, really. I guess. It wasn't like super low cut. It was long, but it was garish. It was red. Bright red was the color of sin. Maybe that's all it is. And maybe she's just like a really good looking woman. So I'm I'm like, this just doesn't seem right. Yeah. Yeah. She carries herself very confidently. For sure. Oh, now I feel like like the patriarchy put those thoughts in my head and I am, I'm ashamed of them. Well, no, I mean, I think they chose that dress in that setting on purpose. So I think you are supposed to get some sort of feelings from it. I just I'm, I'm not entirely sure what those feelings are. 
I I still believe that Juliet wearing red is a foil to Diana's blue because this is not the first time we've seen Juliet in red. Mm. And this was the scene where she makes up her mind to throw Gerbera under the bus and I leave him. Love it. To go do something about Matthew. Yeah. But why why are vampires having a meeting in church during a church service? Well, like, I can understand why Gerbert goes to church. He used to be a pope. That's how he got a lot of his power in Venice. Maybe he still, like, rules it from behind the scenes, you know? Or has something to do with it. So I can understand that. And he would bring his, you know, his sexy underling just to show her off because he's an asshole. But what in the heck is Baldwin doing there? And who is that woman sitting right next to him? And why are they chatting? Right? There is no way nobody else did not hear what they were talking about. Yeah. I mean, the acoustics in that kind of room, you you can't talk normally and not have everybody hear what you're saying. Yeah. Right? It, just, it didn't make any sense. Like, And it seemed very much as if Baldwin were there to meet them. It did. Because why else would he be there? I don't think Baldwin right. is Catholic. And even if he is, why would he go to what is obviously Gerbert's church. Like, it just, the whole... Yeah, it didn't make sense. I don't like it. But it gave us a great scene with Juliet in a gray dress. Yeah, it is a good scene, and the smile on her face as she walks away is fabulous. So, can Juliet ever be free? I don't think so, because her walking away here is still... She's still being manipulated by Domenico. Mm -hmm. But she thinks she is. Yeah. She thinks she has made this choice for herself. Yeah kind of depressing it realizing that her her whole existence here because when i first watched the show i didn't put it together that domenico was still manipulating her i thought he genuinely wanted her to be free Mm, and that made me more upset about the way juliet's character arc ends Mm-hmm. But knowing that there is literally not a single moment in the show where she is not being manipulated by some asshole man it doesn't make me happier about it, but makes it less, makes it seem, it's hard to talk about because it's not till next episode, but right, right. makes that whole, her going, her doing what she does at the end of this episode makes it seem less catty, you know, makes it seem less like, I'm just going to go after this woman who's touching my man. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Knowing that that she's just never had a moment, I think, in her entire hundreds of years being alive, possibly thousands. I don't remember how old she is. Like, just never a single moment where she wasn't being manipulated by somebody. Or yeah. being... Like, uh, when she was human, like, Chabert found her in a brothel. So even even before she was a vampire, she was always just being shit on by men. Right. And that made me feel a little, uh, you know, a little bit more okay with how her story goes. Not okay with it. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. It, it, it changes the perspective and the feeling of that arc. Mm-hmm. But I, we can talk about that more in depth next week. Yeah. And then we're back to the woods in Madison and Matthew and Diana doing like defensive training. <laughs> I like the scene a lot. It is really good. And I feel like they had a lot of fun filming this scene. Yeah. And I, I love how 
event like the the training isn't working her magic isn't like triggering or whatever until matthew sort of knocks her down and she cuts her hand and she's bleeding and matthew's immediately like it's fine it's fine i'm cool and she's just immediately like i'm gonna tease the heck out of him mm-hmm. and i like well, it because yeah she absolutely knows that her magic's not going to be triggered at this point until she feels like she's in danger and she absolutely does not feel any danger for matthew yeah i mean they're they're fake training he's not gonna hurt her and so this gives her the opportunity to just absolutely prance in front of him and tease the shit out of him to provoke Mm -hmm. him and it is awesome to watch yeah and i just like back in episode one i talked about how i didn't like that scene on the riverbank because it was overly dramatic Mm-hmm. And kind of whatever. But I love that it gave us this scene of Diana making fun of how overly dramatic Matthew is. Yeah. Oh, I like how she lowered her voice to be like, don't run. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. And he has his little growl as he chases after her. It's very good. Yeah. And then Diana flies and the special effects are terrible as usual. Uh, but... Then she crashes into him, and he was, grabs her butt again. I just wanted <laughs> to cry that out a lot. We should have kept a counter, like a running tally of how many times he grabbed her butt. I'm pretty sure it's only three, but in eight episodes, three, you know, that's almost half. <laughs> yeah. So it, I, I think it's interesting that you call what she did flying, because it didn't feel like flying to me. I don't know what it felt like, but it didn't feel like flying. I think that's just because the special effects are bad. Okay. All right. I'll I'll give you that one. Because she jumps up into the air and she stays there. That's true. I don't know what else to call that. Okay. Floating? All right. Yeah, I guess it felt more like floating or hovering or like it felt like a really big jump and then just hanging out. (laughs) But I guess technically that's flying. It was just, you're right. It was done poorly. Yeah. Don't laugh at me. It's fine. No, that's, I, again, I think this is just bad, bad special effects. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. All right. But it does take us into some really great sexy times. Yeah. Those are very well filmed. Very well filmed. It's actually a nice respite after the really bad special effects in the woods. Yeah. Um, and they play that really good song called I Found by uh, a band called Amber Run. It's a little, it's again, a little on the nose because there's literally yeah. a line that's like, I found love right where it wasn't supposed to be or something like mm-hmm. that. Yep. And it's like, wow, you guys found the most literal, literal thing you could. But it is also just a very good song for the. It is a good song. For the Absolutely sexy a good song. Um, whoever does the music just has this uncanny ability to find like spot on music that is actually sounds good. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't feel like they tried to shoehorn this terrible song in because it's got lyrics that they wanted. Like they found genuinely good music that has the same meaning. Yeah. And it, that they're looking for fit the scene too. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's talk about their sexy times for a minute. Okay. Like, To me, it felt heavily, heavily implied in this episode that they actually had sex. Yeah. I I have seen uh, posts on, on Tumblr from people who haven't read the book that are like, mm-hmm. did they? Didn't they? What? what? 
Like, I I feel like, so previously, I think it was, it might have been like episode four, four or five, where we had the, the bundling conversation. So the the show has very obviously set up this idea that Matthew doesn't want to actually have intercourse at this point in their relationship, which is why they did French bundling, quote unquote. But we haven't, like, it's never been mentioned again. It was just kind of briefly mentioned in passing there. Mm-hmm. Like, we haven't had any any explanation of why they're doing this. And then we get a scene like this that's cut in such a way that if you haven't read the book, you full on believe they just had sex. And so I feel like they could have done this better. Yeah, I I get that they wanted to have like a good sexy scene and then follow up with that serious conversation and that maybe there just wasn't a place in there for them to have that conversation. Yeah. But it it is odd. Or it, it's not odd, but it it just means they're going to have to talk about it next season. Yeah. And then people are going to be like, oh, they didn't have sex. <laughs> right. People are going to be like, of course they've been having sex since season one. What are you talking about? Yeah. But no, they haven't. And it also, like, if they just randomly bring it up next season, it's not going to, like, in, hmm, it's hard to talk about this without spoilers. But, like, there's reasons in Matthew's head at any rate that he doesn't want to have sex. And mm-hmm. if we're not diving into that, I just think it's we're missing a bit of his character and their relationship. Right. Yeah. That's why I feel like there should have been a little bit more explanation back in the episode where they did talk about bundling. Yeah. Because then in that episode, if I'm remembering correctly, it was basically, do you know what bundling is? This is the thing we're going to do now. Yeah. And then I don't think that's what bundling it is. It is in France. You know, like they made, they turned it into a joke instead of giving us an actual insight into Matthew's character. Even in that episode, you could think that they had sex though. Right. That, that, yeah, that's true. But if they had given us a little bit of his motivation in that conversation, Mm -hmm. it would have been enough to flow through to this episode, I think. Yeah. But it's easily forgettable because it feels like that was almost a throwaway line, especially if you haven't read the books. Yeah. And so there God, there are just so many things that they've done that they've had to truncate in the show that makes me wonder how they're going to like resolve them for later story points. Yeah. And I think they can. I just don't know how and and I'm really curious how they're going to do it. It is possible with this particular one, they just won't address it. Yeah. That's yeah, you're right. That's possible. Which I think is kind of a disservice to Matthew's character and to not not because I think he's making a good choice here, because I think, again, spoilers, 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 but I, I think it takes out some of his growth. Yeah. By not yeah. putting him in a lesser place here or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But the sexy times do lead us to a nice conversation between Matthew and Diana, where he finally kind of tells her about... Eleanor and Cecilia. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. I'm sad that we don't get specifics because it's implied heavily that he killed them. And that's just not. I think he outright tells Hamish that he killed them or Hamish tells him that he killed them. Right. 
I forget. It, it's like they say that he hurt them, and that mm, and they're okay. obviously not around anymore. Right, but they're also human, so they could have died from old age. This is true. This is true. <laughs> but I don't know. You get the specifics of them in the book, and we can talk about that in our spoiler section if we want. And I, I feel like him just having this guilt and us not knowing exactly what happened makes it seem like he just gave in to his baser vampire instincts and drank their blood. Right. Which yeah. is not what happened. No. But we do get Diana being pretty awesome in this scene. Yes. When she tells him that he won't hurt her because she won't let him. Yeah. And she says, I'm powerful. Right. She says, I'm not a human. I am a powerful witch. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to let you do this thing to me. And I just kind of want to stand up and say, fuck yeah, Diana. And she does it while, like, booping him on the nose. <laughs> and it's so good. Yeah, yeah little nose boop. Like, I uh, want a nose boop about a vampire. <laughs> while telling him that you're he can't hurt you because of how powerful you are? Yes. Yeah. I do feel a little bit robbed that we didn't get a morning after scene where they're, like, grabbing their clothes that they left strewn about the house and getting caught by Sarah M. <laughs> or, like, Sarah and M finding their clothes all over like i'm just i'm very intrigued about the dynamics of these two couples living in a house together i thought i think it could have been hilarious i think i would prefer to have a scene of sarah and em waking up in the morning and walking through the house and the house hiding hiding the clothes that would have been good yeah that would be fantastic i i do miss um in the book the house has a very keen sense of privacy Mm-hmm. So I think that that would be very accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And then a taxi pulls up. And briefly, I expected it to be Sophie and Nat who got out of the taxi because we had just come from that conversation between Agatha and Hamish right. wanting to introduce Sophie to Diana. But alas, it is not Sophie and Nat. It is actually better because it's Miriam and Marcus in Madison. I've missed Miriam and Marcus. Yes, I it's love been a little so while. Much. And the scene where Miriam hisses at the cat and then says, like, I don't think we have to go inside. It's fine. <laughs> and Marcus <laughs> is just like, why are you being this way? It's like, that's not very sociable. Yeah. <laughs> and Sarah opens the door and Miriam and Sarah just stare at each other. Mm-hmm. And Emma's immediately like, I will rescue us all. <laughs> yeah, I love how they set this up as... Like, Sarah and Miriam are so similar, and Marcus and M are so similar. Yeah. Like, Sarah and Miriam are both, like, roosters, like, with their feathers ruffled. You know, they're just, like, cowing about. And Marcus and M are like, okay, how can we fix this? Yeah. Like, how can we make everybody just get along? It's great. And Marcus is just so, like, excited to be there and talking and meeting people. It's Right? I, I have missed Puppy Dog Vampire. Well, especially since we find out that he's just really excited to meet them because he's met Sarah Bishop back in the war. Yeah, their uh, their ancestor. I love when Sarah, like, I guess he's staring at Sarah and she says, you got a problem, Junior? And he, he's immediately like, you look so much like your ancestor who I met uh, some hundreds of years. I have no idea when the American Revolution was. 
That would be uh, leading up to the uh, independence of the American country, which happened in 1776. So like 300 years Somewhere. Ago. Yeah. Like, yeah early 1770s um i think my favorite thing about that line is that marcus is obviously hundreds of years older than sarah and she calls him junior yeah i love but like it's right after she says junior that he's like i knew your ancestor 300 years ago right (laughs) and she's but she doesn't back down she still looks at him like stop talking exactly (laughs) so good like i think he intends it to be something that would soften her towards him and instead, mm-hmm. she just, like, steadfast in her hatred of vampires in this moment. Yeah. She's like, nothing you can say is going to make me smile at you right now. It's so bad, though, because I just love Marcus. Mm-hmm. He's so great. He's so sweet. Mm-hmm. And then they're all yelling at each other, and the house doesn't like it. Which I think is kind of funny, since the whole episode has been people arguing, and the house hasn't really done anything. But right, whatever. Yeah, and uh, this the house decides to stop the arguing by spitting out a page of Ashmole seven eighty two for them that's in an envelope from Sarah's father. And I saw somewhere on Reddit somebody referred to this wall as the vagina wall. Yep. And now I can't unsee it. Yep. Why do people have to do that? Because then you just can't unsee it. I very specifically didn't put that in the notes. I... <laughs> so I like that you brought it up anyways. Like, I was like, no way. And I went through and I paused it frame by frame. And I was like, I have to see what people are talking about. And I was like, oh, my God. It's a vagina wall. Yep. Yep. I mean... No, there's nothing to be said about that. It's an interesting design choice. They could have just had it flow down from the ceiling. Right. I think I'm pretty sure in the book it came, it either came out of the fireplace or like between the cracks and some like wood in the wall or something. Yeah. Like the wall itself didn't just open. Like a magical crack didn't appear. I like- so yeah, interesting design choice, I think. And I like that we've now passed on this to our listeners. You will never not be able to see the vagina wall. You are welcome. Um, but it is a page of Ashmole 782, and everybody's like, ooh. Eh. <laughs> I don't really know what else to say about this. It's got a note on the envelope from uh, Stephen. And it, yeah, Sarah and Miriam kind of fight over it. Yeah, so it shows a picture of, uh, I think it's supposed to be the alchemical wedding, which they don't say here. But it's if you look at it, it's a photograph of um, a man figure in black and a woman figure in white. At their feet, there's a lion and a wolf. Mm-hmm. And uh, Miriam or Marcus, one of them, says that, oh, that's got Matthew's insignia on it. And so... Obviously, we know in that moment it's supposed to be somehow important. I mean, obviously, it's important. It's from Ashmole 782. Mm-hmm. But that's what starts the struggle between Sarah and Miriam both wanting to look at the, the page. Yeah. And we get more more tension between everybody. I Sarah has a bit of a throwaway line here where she mentions that, or Diana mentions that she noticed three pages had been cut from the book. And then Sarah says, 
if pages being torn from the book would explain why the magic was broken. And they don't really dive into that, but it is like that sort of sets up the whole plot going forward that they have to find the missing pages mm -hmm. in yeah. order to return them to the book. So well, it's interesting because it's unclear. It, reading that out of context almost makes it sound like breaking the magic is what was a, was what caused Diana to be able to call the book itself. But that's not the magic she's referring to specifically. Right. She's referring to the words flowing too fast for Diana to read. Yeah, that's the magic that's broken. That that because the pages were taken out, it broke the the spell on the words in the book. And that's or the magic that the book has intrinsically, not the spell that was on the book. Right, exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. So I think we'll probably definitely get more of that next season. We'll probably dive more definitely. Into that. Probably definitely, yes. <laughs> we sound so confident, don't we? Yep. And then just as Sarah and Miriam are about to have a all out cat fight, we go back to Venice with uh, Domenico walking around and Satu skulking around and it doesn't turn out for well for Satu. It really doesn't. Not much happens in this scene other than Domenico gets set Oh, Satu still doesn't have her magic back. Yeah, I honestly, I thought for a moment watching this that Satu was trying to play Domenico and that she really did have her powers and somehow she was trying to trap him for some reason. Hmm. But that is not what happened. She really did not have her powers and, and he captured her. I guess we forgot to mention in the previous scene with Setu and Nox that Nox confirmed that her magic will come back. She just takes time. Right. Yeah. So I think I, because of that, I assumed that somehow, like, it just felt like the way they filmed it with her skulking is a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. it. It seemed like she was doing it on purpose, trying to trap him. And the way that she ran was somewhere that was a dead end. Right. And I wouldn't expect Satu to do that. And so it felt like she was trying to trap him. And that's not what happened. So I don't know what the end goal of this is going to be at this point, other than we know that now Domenico has her. But it was curious. Why was Satu walking around anyways if she doesn't have her powers? Like, that just seems a poor choice on her part, especially since Peter knows people are looking for her. Yeah, let's go walk around the town that the congregation is based in while yeah. the congregation is looking for me, because that's a smart idea. Although maybe Peter wanted her to be found, because then they could stop looking for her and get back to Diana. I don't know. But it just seems a weird choice for Satu to make. Yeah, yeah. But then we go back to Madison. Yeah, and get Matthew and Diana looking at the page alone. Who knows where everyone else went? Maybe outside to watch Sarah and Miriam have their... Their cat fight. <laughs> now, there's something that I want. Sarah versus Miriam in a friendly fight. Ooh, that'd be good. I think I just want to watch them yell at each other. Oh, no, I want vampire versus witch. Oh, okay. It'd be so great. But, like, friendly, you know? They're not trying to kill each other. They just want to know who'd win. This is off right. topic. <laughs> but Diana seeing her dad's handwriting on the envelope makes her realize that he also wrote in... Ashmole 782. Mm -hmm. So he must have had it in his possession at one point. And that this causes Matthew to speculate that the spell hiding the book was put on the book by Stephen. I think that's an interesting leap to make. It's, yes. Like, I feel like Matthew makes a lot of logical leaps in this episode that, that are bigger than they should be. 
based on the information we're given in the show. Yeah, especially since he doesn't talk it all the way through. Like, he doesn't right. say, Stephen could have time-walked back to the 1800s and put the spell on it then, since right. this book has been missing for hundreds of years, or a hundred years, or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, he yeah. just says, Stephen could have put that spell on the book, and then mentions Diana seeing him outside of the Bodleian, so it almost kind of implies that he put the spell on the book then, which wouldn't right. work, and yeah. Yeah. So, fun fact. Okay. Not not a fact, actually, at all. Fun anecdote. So, um, I was watching this with my boyfriend because I've gotten him interested in this and it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But he was watching the first episode with me when um, like he got really interested in the two different inscriptions that were in the book. And then right after that, she runs into the guy that she thinks is her dad. Mm-hmm. And he immediately looked at me and he said, her dad wrote that in the book, right? Interesting. Like, he had no context. He hadn't read the book. All he had seen was the first episode, and that's immediately what he thought. It's like, how does your brain get there? So, well, maybe the show does a better job than we can, since we've read the book and we know everything, like, we can't. Maybe. Our brains aren't thinking of it that way. Yeah, maybe. So maybe the show does a better job than we think. So I guess, listeners, if you also got that foreshadowing way before this episode, let us know, because we think the show was poorly written in that sort of foreshadowing way, but maybe it really wasn't. Yeah. So then we're back to Domenico and Baldwin, and Domenico hands over Satu and says, look, I have found the missing witch. We can get back to looking for Diana. And Baldwin is like, oh, shit. Baldwin tries real hard. Yeah. He does. He's like, no, I want to punish Satu. We need to focus on this right now. She was at my house. Blah, 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 blah. And Domenico was just like, I'm not buying your shit. Yeah. This is not happening. It's pretty great. It's a good conversation to watch them try to out-manipulate each other. Yeah. And Domenico at the end is just like, I'm going to hold on to her for now, and I'll let you know what I want. And it's the first time that Domenico has out loud been like, this is all about me. Yeah. You know? So one day we might actually also find out what Domenico wants. Gosh, I hope so. I hope so, too. Uh, And then we go back to some training in the woods. Sadly, no sexy times or butt grabbing this time. But Diana tries real hard. She does. She obviously would prefer You know, this would be way more fun if you were just over here kissing me. Yeah. (laughs) She does try. Oh, and Matthew has his cute little grin. We don't see him smile too much, so that was nice. Mm Mm-hmm. But then she walks into Puffy Vest Juliet, which I love that she went from sexy red dress to Puffy Vest. It's great. And then the episode ends with almost a literal dun-dun-dun. Yeah, my notes end exactly that same way. I was like, it's Juliet. Dun-dun-dun. Because, I mean, that's all we get. Like, Matthew doesn't even make it into the shot. It's just Juliet grabs her, fade to black. Yeah. You know, and I've seen some discussion about how improbable this could be, because why wouldn't Matthew have sensed Juliet in the barn? Mm -hmm. Or smelled her. Like, smelled her, heard her, or anything. And this was done slightly differently than how it was done in the book. And so I think they're valid questions. But I am always very, very generous when I see things like this. Yeah. And so my, my impression is... That he was so focused on Diana that 
Diana was his world in those moments. Mm-hmm. And Juliet appeared like she made it into the barn like just right before Diana sensed her there and started walking towards the barn because she it was just moments before when she was like, I sense a vampiric presence this way. And then she's walking that way and we're like, Matthew's not there. And then there's Juliet. You know, it was done very quickly. And so I think we're supposed to believe that it was just so fast. Plus, Matthew was so focused on Diana. That's why the situation could have occurred. Yeah, I don't know. It was... I mean, I don't I don't particularly care. I can just whistle past that. That's fine. Okay. Um So it doesn't bother it, you that like I think the just... criticisms are valid in both in okay. the show and the book, but I don't mm-hmm. care. Like whatever, it's fine. She wanted right. they wanted Juliet to, you know, appear out of the woods. I Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, we needed the tension and we needed Juliet to show up because We've been leading to this the whole season mm-hmm. of Juliet and Matthew being in the same place at the same time. And yeah, that's that's, that's that. Episode. Got one episode left. We need more. I mean, for a penultimate episode though, this was really good. I know we we've talked about some things that, that we didn't really like or appreciate, but I think as a whole, this episode was really good. It had a lot of action. It had a lot of world building and progressing the story without doing it in an exposition sort of way Mm -hmm. like it wasn't this like word dump we were shown a lot of things instead of being told a lot of things yeah and And let's let's be honest the sexy times were real good oh yeah yeah and i think it's interesting like everybody including us we compare this uh, tv show and the books to twilight a lot but Mm -hmm. like i would always I used to work in a bookstore and I would always recommend these books to people who liked Outlander. And mm-hmm. I would presume that the TV show got made in that vein, like to appeal to that same audience. Mm-hmm. Cause they're very different, but in a way they're also kind of similar. Yeah. I mean, Outlander is this without witches and vampires. Yeah. Um, honestly, but I think it's interesting. The different takes that they're taking, whatever on filming the the sex scenes Mm because outlander is very much like nudity yes let's just show everything and Mm -hmm. i don't have a problem with that they have some very good sex scenes in outlander but in this show it's a little more like there haven't really been any nudity and they're but they're still really nicely done and still very sexy Mm -hmm. and i i i'm kind of curious about why like who made that decision um, but I also, I, I like it. I like that it's different, that they're doing their own thing. Yeah. I wonder if it has to do with, like, the time slot that they had. Maybe they couldn't show nudity for whenever it aired. I, I don't know or if it was, like, just a rating thing. Like, they were trying to keep it the equivalent of, of what would be PG-13 here. Maybe. Maybe Teresa Good didn't want to do nudity. That's a possibility. Teresa Palmer, Matthew Good. God, yeah. <laughs> Just like that's yeah, yeah. that's what we smooshed them. Neither of them wanted to do nudity. Yeah, there we go. I don't know. But either way, I mean, it it is filmed very well. All of their sex scenes have been filmed very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think their sex scenes have been some of my favorite scenes just because the chemistry the actors have with each other is wonderful. Yeah. It is and they clearly good. have fun while they're doing it. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> doing it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's not what I meant, but yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so that's obviously a favorite of ours. And I think all of our favorites that we've listed here, we've kind of, we've already really dived into. Mm-hmm. Um, Marcus, fabulous. Dana's teasing of Matthew literally made a scene that I don't like in a previous episode better. So yeah. that's yeah. interesting. Everything with Sarah and M. So good. Yeah. we. I mean, we've talked about all of our favorite stuff extensively. I, I don't think we need to call it out again. So, so let's dive into our spoilers. Well, if you have not read the books or watched all of the episodes, all one that is left... Please proceed at your own risk. In this section, we are going to talk about things that may not have yet appeared in the show or don't at all. So please turn us off now if you don't want to be spoiled, and we will see you next week. Alrighty. They've taken out any mention of Diana being frightened of her mother's magic. Like, there's a scene in the book where Diana remembers her mother doing some some black magic or some Mm -hmm. dark magic or whatever they call it, and it frightening her. And this was like a, this comes into play in book three about Diana being frightened of her own magic and that sort of thing. And so, I mean, I can understand why they took it out, but I kind of miss it. Yeah. And then they, they didn't really get into the people in the alchemical illustration looking like Diana and Matthew, which, you know, is just more evidence that their relationship is important to the survival of the species and like preordained almost yeah i mean i think they try and just by saying oh look that's matthew's insignia Mm -hmm. they're trying to set something up there it just wasn't done as in-depth as it was in the book yeah and then cutting that out also cuts out any conversation about foreshadowing them having children yeah i that has been a thread that i have missed the entire season yeah because it's such a big, it's such a big plot thread to the overarching story. Mm-hmm. And it's not been hinted at yet. Yeah, like, I don't necessarily miss it this season, but I know I'm going to miss it in the future. Like, I'm going to miss that it was not foreshadowed at all. Yeah, yeah. And then just... I guess, you, yeah, no, I think, actually, that's a really good way to put it. Because the way they told the story, if you don't know about it, you don't miss it. Mm-hmm. obviously you don't know what's missing but i feel like once they do finally bring it in i'm gonna wish for sure that they had layered it in in some way mm-hmm. early on and then when when time walking came up i'm just a little bit sad that they cut out the stories about how diana used to time walk when she was young just because it showed a time where she enjoyed her magic and used mm-hmm. it to you know Go back and get more birthday cake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So at this point, the version of Diana that we know has never enjoyed her magic in her life. Yeah. And I, I hope that one day we get to see that she remembers that magic was fun at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the thing that I am most annoyed about and that I miss the most is that we are at the end of the season and there's really been no hint of Matthew's blood rage mm-hmm. and that's such a big point in book two and how Philippe comes to accept Diana 
has to do with Matthew's blood rage. It's also and, like a huge, huge point in the overarching story, like like how they come to save all the species. These right, whatever species. I, I think species is singular <laughs> and plural. Whatever. I think like it's 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 a huge thing. So for them to have not mentioned it at all is a little bit. Dodgy. Yeah, especially since in the book it came up so early, mm-hmm. like so early, and it just isn't there, and and so it makes me wonder. Like, I feel like they're they're setting up season two to do so much heavy lifting that they could have eased by planting seeds in season one. Yeah, that they didn't plant, and I really just wish they had. Yeah, I agree. I I, I it's sort of like, and they could have tied it in. To Cecilia and Eleanor, because I forget which one it was, but at least one of them, Matthew, was in a rage when he killed her. Yeah, that was Eleanor. So we still have one more episode to go mm-hmm. that is not going to clear up any of these things that we're talking about right now. No. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. So we'd love to know what you think of Matthew and Diana so far. Uh, use hashtag desire made real to join our conversation on Twitter. I'm Caitlin and you can find my other show, uh, Commander for Own at commanderforown.com or you can find me on Twitter at inferior Caitlin. And I am Mandy Kay and you can find this show and all of the other Eloquent Gushing shows at eloquentgushing.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing. Or you can find me on Twitter at Mandy Kay. Join us next week as we talk about episode eight, the final episode where we will see my least favorite scene in the whole series. Ooh. So until we meet again, remember that with every ending, there's a new beginning. <laughs>